All right, I believe we are live. So welcome everybody to Going Planetary, uh, the next episode of Mutations, uh, live streamed this time. Last time uh, we went about 90 minutes doing some integral theory reading conversation and taking your questions. And um, that was really fun. Uh, my microphone wasn't set up properly or it somehow forgot the correct microphone. So for this session, hopefully I have this nice uh, mic, which will be ported over to the audio podcast and syndicated wherever you find podcasts. So feel free to subscribe and leave a rating for mutations wherever you listen to your podcasts, like on Apple uh, or Spotify. And uh, feel free to support me on Patreon, on the Mutations Patreon, where we host regular uh, uh, private live streams and Zoom calls for the, for the patrons. Um, and those have been really wonderful. This is a kind of opening note. Um, those have been really fantastic because uh, a lot of the times we have a lot of like people who are doing different research, uh, folks who are working on PhD programs or master's programs. And there's a lot of sharing of books and reading and ideas. So if you are interested in that kind of rich environment, um, I find it to be very generative and also very constructive and inspiring for my own writing. So Really great group. We've got a great cohort there. There's also a Discord channel that goes along with it. So if you are interested also in just chatting me up on Discord, I do use that regularly. Um, I think a lot of the the, the, the technologies that the uh, gaming world through their streaming have developed uh, are now being adopted pretty much by any kind of podcaster and, and um, uh, uh, media show host on the internet. So it's pretty cool. Um, all right, so I wanted to talk about uh, the concept of the planetary uh, for this session. And the planetary uh, is a word that I use quite a bit. It's used in the consciousness culture circles, uh, planetary culture you may have heard, uh, planetization you may have heard, uh, what else? Um, uh, planetary evolution, right? So there's a lot of words that get associated in terms that get associated with this. And some of them are a bit more technical. Some of them aren't, right? So I think for the most part, we really have to make some distinctions and coherence in terms of like what we mean by planetary. And so I wanted to share a little bit from the philosopher Eugene Thacker in this book right here in the dust of this planet, um, a little bit from Symbiotic Planet by Lynn Margulis, the, uh, um, a famous biologist who popularized uh, the endosymbiotic theory of evolution and popularized symbiosis, et cetera. She has very interesting definitions of the Gaia hypothesis and thinking at a planetary scale and what that actually means, at least scientifically. And then a little bit from William Irwin Thompson and myself. Um, uh, let's see. So uh, now one of the things that I think we should begin with is really setting the planetary in the context of the current uh, meta crisis or the civilizational crisis that we're in. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, I will share the article a few months ago, had posted, uh, uh, I think it was, it was in the New Yorker, uh, a very interesting essay where he was talking about uh, the structure of feeling of the pandemic, right? The structure of feeling of our times. And he wasn't only talking about, you know, a, a global uh, pandemic in terms of a health crisis, the biology of it, right? And the, and the, 
the pandemic nature of it, but also all of the kind of multi-tiered systems that this uh, global crisis uh, checked off, right? So we're talking about uh, economics, we're talking about distribution and supply chains, we're talking about uh, different really different sociologies and how particular cultures relate to practices of mutual aid and austerity and, and do they help people out in a time where the economy needs to shut down? And why do we have to have an economy that always needs to be uh, going on full speed and going faster and faster every quarter? Uh, we are not robust or resilient enough to be able to stop. Don't you think we should be able to? So a lot of questions started to get raised. A lot of possibilities began to be at least intuited for a time, uh, a kind of an interzone of possibility as things were breaking down and buckling. And he calls this the structure of feeling, right? There's a structure of feeling of our times that in a sense is, um, we can feel the whole, right? We can feel the the entirety, the holism of, of our context, uh, even if we can't necessarily articulate it um, in, a, in a specific theory, or if we can't, um, say that we are planetary, we nevertheless have a sense of the entirety of the planet going through a thing. So there's a structure of feeling that is almost um, impossible to articulate, right? And yet here it is. And I think this is really important, actually. This is, this is a great place to start uh, whenever we're talking about some kind of um, uh, planetary complexity or some kind of like, where how do we get to this uh, in a way that is not completely abstract. And I think we can start with this definition that becoming planetary or planetary culture or or thinking um, of, of the human species in a planetary modality is, is first this structure of feeling. And it may manifest itself negatively. Um, and I guess I'll bring in William Irwin Thompson first because uh, one of his uh, popular essays or one of my favorite essays that he wrote was was talking about this sense of um that the planetary culture is already here right and it's called it's already begun the planetary age is an unacknowledged daily reality and he was writing this back in let's see winter 1985 1986 um and i don't exactly know what uh, what journal this was in but the article is posted online and i'll share it but part of what he says is you know he calls it the civilizational unconscious, and he describes these as planetary foreshadowings. And elsewhere, Thompson also writes about, you know, evil enunciates the next world order. Um, and, and that sounds, um, uh, he's not talking about new, like a new world order or anything like that. He's saying in cultural evolution, very often the the kind of mentality and the kind of ontology that the emergent culture is going to articulate and express constructively and positively is very often first expressed negatively as catastrophe, right? And I think this dovetails a little bit into what Michelle Bowens has talked about in terms of this year being a kind of uh, pedagogical catastrophe, a, a learning crisis. And very often what we have to learn in that crisis is the styles of thinking, of relationality, uh, the appropriate social imaginary, the new subjectivities that have to constellate the emergent culture. So if we're going to look towards a planetary culture, we have to look at that kind of constellation of meaning making, anxiety and crisis, the shortcomings of our 
of our, our ways of relating to the world and thinking and what the kind of negative image of planetary culture looks like. So all that being said, I think it would be good to jump over to uh, Eugene Thacker's In the Dust of This Planet. Uh, and this is a great little book. I recommend it actually. Um, it's a zero book, uh, zero books text uh, published quite a few years ago, 2010. And I think it's, it's become even more appropriate today uh, just because of everything that's going on. I mean, like listen to the first few pages. We're not gonna go through the whole thing. I just have a few quotes for you, but just the opening lines. He says, the world is increasingly unthinkable, a world of planetary disasters, emerging pandemics. Oof, remember 2010, this was written. Tectonic shifts, strange, strange weather, oil-drenched seascapes, and the furtive, always looming threat of extinction. In spite of our daily concerns, wants, and desires, it is increasingly difficult to comprehend the world in which we live and to which we are a part. To confront this idea is to confront an absolute limit to our ability to adequately understand the world at all, an idea that has been a central motif of the horror genre for some time. And he goes into it in this book. He uses horror as a genre to talk about the limits of the limits of the of the known world and he makes some certain distinctions that i think are interesting here and they might be useful for us because we're talking about we're kind of circumnavigating the possibility of a planetary culture through a sort of via negativa let's approach this um uh, discerning what planetary culture is not in order to really come towards or perhaps um uh, emerge with a better felt sense of what planetary culture and planetization could be. And we'll get into planetization a little bit too, but he says, uh, this is on page six now, in a sense, the real challenge today is not finding a new or improved version of the world for us. And it is not relentlessly pursuing the phantom objectivity of the world in itself. The real challenge lies in confronting this enigmatic concept of the world without us and understanding why this world without us continues to persist in the shadows of those for us and the world in itself. We can abbreviate these three concepts further. The world for us is simply the world. The world in itself is simply the earth and the world without us is simply the planet. The terms world and worlding are frequently used in phenomenology to describe the way in which we as human subjects exist in the world at the same time as the world is revealed to us. By contrast, we understand the earth as encompassing all the knowledge of the world as an object via geology, archaeology, paleontology, the life sciences, the atmospheric sciences, meteorology, climatology, and so on. What then is the planet? The world, the world for us, not only implies a human-centric mode of being, but it also points to the fuzzy domain of the not-human, or that which is not for us. We may understand this in a general sense, as that which we cannot control or predict, or we may understand it in, a more, co in more concrete terms, as the ozone, carbon footprints, and so on. Thus, the world implicitly opens onto the Earth. But even the earth is simply a designation that we've given to something that has revealed itself or made itself available to the gathering of samples, generating of data, production of models, and disputes over policy. By necessity, there are other characteristics that are not accounted for, and this is the important part, that are not measured and that remain hidden and occulted. 
Anything that reveals itself does not reveal itself in total. And this is sort of tangential to speculative realism in philosophy or Tim Morton's hyper objects, right? Everything that is revealed only reveals an aspect of itself, but never fully itself, never the totality of itself. And so this is where we get to Eugene Thacker's definition of what the planetary, the planet means. He says, this remainder perhaps is the planet. In a literal sense, the planet moves beyond this objective world but it also recedes behind the objective Earth. The planet is a planet. It is one planet among other planets, moving the scale of things out from the terrestrial into the cosmological framework. Whether the planet is yet another subjective idealist construct or whether it can have objectivity and be accounted for as such is an irresolvable dilemma. What is important in the concept of the planet is that it remains a negative concept, simply that which remains after the human. This is also, for those of you who are curious, sort of tangential to you in the humanities uh, post-humanism and the non-human turn and really looking at what he's calling the world without us. You know, we shouldn't read that too negatively as a, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, what was it? It was like a decade or so ago during, you know, the, the initial stirrings of climate concern. Um, it was a, a cable documentary series, The World Without Us, I believe, and it was based on a book, and um, I can't remember the author's name, but a lot of it kind of was like, all right, well, what happens a thousand years after humans are gone? What happens to our cities? What does the Earth look like? He's not talking about that, because that's still the Earth. That's still the material Earth. What Thacker is really pointing to is the limits of knowability, uh, the shyness of objects, right? The, uh, and this is object-oriented ontology, the bigger on the inside than the outside of things and our ability only to only to see or perceive one aspect or one one face of anything that is revealing itself to us and so totalizing knowledge um, is is not possible nor is it necessarily recommended right so there's a new way of knowing here that is now beginning to accommodate for not knowing and why is this important well he's saying that Thacker is particularly saying that unless we incorporate this healthy dose of not knowing in terms of our epistemology, uh, we are not going to be able to inhabit the unthinkable world in which we are already dealing with, right? The unthinkable world of climate change and hyper objects and complexity is something we necessarily have to learn to become comfortable with in terms of not knowing, in terms of um, uh, beginning to cultivate a form of sense making that is more like Tim Morton's dark ecology, um, hyper objects is what I mentioned before, um, object-oriented ontologies, another one sort of being developed in the in the humanities right now. These all are, are really trying to help us become comfortable with the ecological turn, right? And allowing ecology to really begin to inform epistemology, sciences, humanities, etc. Now this may all seem very academic, but as a sort of advocation, right? We're, we're advocating for a negative philosophy. This is sort of the, the foundations I think we need to really kind of build, um, <laughs> to, to build a non-foundation a non for philosophy in the age of the Anthropocene. Um, 
And you know, what's interesting here too, just as a comment before we move on to Lynn Margulis to explore becoming planetary, uh, he also says that the planet, the world without us, is in the words of darkness mysticism, the dark intelligible abyss that is paradoxically manifest as the world and the earth. Um, so the dark intelligible abyss, again, he's, he's flirting with Christian mysticism to be able to talk about the limits of reason healthy limits of reason and the ability to step perhaps beyond that and participate in this mystery, which I think, uh, you know, if, if I understand this book in any sense, um, he's also talking about the need for, for our thinking to go cosmological about this. And we do need a new cosmology today. We need a cosmology that can inhabit the Anthropocene, that can be comfortable with the limits of human knowledge and really allow ourselves to move out of a predominantly anthropocentric and Cartesian paradigm uh, in terms of our cultural evolution. So all of this has to do with that and becoming planetary. So I think this is a great book in terms of really deconstructing and clearing the path via negativa for planetary thinking. Because thinking and philosophy and concepts can, should, ought to continue, but they continue with a new relationship. They don't continue, um, again, in this sort of Cartesian modernistic perspectival approach that wishes to kind of map out and spatialize the world, because again, that is the world, not the planet, in, in, in terms of Thacker's distinctions here. We need to be able to get over ourselves or become transparent to ourselves and open up to the non-human world in some capacity. and. Obviously, this is deeply important, especially with what we're dealing with right now uh, in terms of our civilizational crisis. And now with, with Margulis, we're going to jump to Lynn Margulis um, as another read of Going Planetary. And this one is more along the lines of the biological, along the lines of the um, material living interrelationships of uh, organisms and the planet. But I think it's important because there's interesting distinctions here as well. So here is Lynn Margulis succinctly defining uh, the what Gaia hypothesis is. We're moving now from the concept of the planetary to something adjacent but interconnected, which is uh, Gaia hypothesis, which is sort of looking at the whole Earth as, well, uh, let's read it actually. Uh, Gaia is neither... Uh, vicious nor nurturing in relation to humanity. It is a convenient name for an earth-wide phenomenon. The regulation of temperature, acidity, alkalinity, and gas composition. Gaia is the series of interacting ecosystems that compose a single huge ecosystem at the Earth's surface, period. In this copy of Symbiotic Planet, that's on page 120. And then... Margulis continues on the next page here. Gaia, in all her symbiogenetic glory, is inherently expansive, subtle, aesthetic, ancient, and exquisitely resilient. No planetoid collisions or nuclear explosions have ever threatened Gaia as a whole. So far, the only way in which we remain, in which we humans prove our dominance is by expansion. We remain brazen, crass, and recent even as we become more numerous. Our toughness is a delusion. 
Have we the intelligence and discipline to resist our tendency to grow without limit? The planet will not permit our populations to continue to expand. Runaway populations of bacteria, locusts, roaches, mice, and, gra and grass always collapse. Their own wastes disgust as crowding and severe shortages ensue. Diseases as, a, as opportunistically expanding populations of the other follow. They take their cue from destructive behaviors and social disintegration. Even herbivores, if desperate, become vicious predators and cannibals. Cows will hunt rabbits or eat their calves. Many hungry young mammals will vie to eat the meat of their runted littermates. Population overgrowth leads to stress. Stress depresses population overgrowth. An example of a Gaian-regulated cycle. We people are just like our planet mates. We cannot put an end to nature. We can only pose a threat to ourselves. The notion that we can destroy all life, including bacteria thriving in the water tanks of nuclear power plants or boiling hot vents, is ludicrous. I hear our non-human brethren snickering. Got along without you before I met you. Gonna get along without you now. They sing to us. They sing about us in harmony. Most of them, the microbes, the whales, the insects, the seed plants, and the birds are still singing. The tropical forest trees are humming to themselves, waiting for us to finish our arrogant logging so they can get back to their business of growth as usual. And they will continue their cacophonies and harmonies long after we are gone. I wanted to put this in here because, you know, unlike uh, Thacker's approach, Margulis, obviously, she's famous scientist. She has a very material sense of what's going on. Homeostasis and self-regulation. Um, again, alkaline cycles and carbon dioxide, etc. The regulatory processes of the planet and the biosphere is what really makes up this Gaia hypothesis theory. And elsewhere, she talks about, you know, Gaia is not an organism. It's an emergent property that's self-regulatory, but it's not a singular organism. And so the whole um, onto and phylogenetic um, capitulations, right? Like the, the you know the the whole reflects the individual is is only is only so good of a metaphor. And in terms of actually looking at these processes, it's it's factually incorrect. So we need a new way of thinking about the whole. And I guess that's why I'm, I find Gaia hypothesis very interesting when we contextualize planetary culture, right? Because we need a new way of thinking about the whole. Um, I constellate all these together because the last or perhaps the third terminology I think we should familiarize ourselves with is the concept of planetization that Tehar de Chardin, um, the Jesuit theologian, mystic, and uh, paleontologist who uh, was very involved in uh, paleontological digs in China, and he wrote The Phenomenon of Man or The Human Phenomenon, which at the time was not allowed to be published during his life. Um, the church wasn't very happy with some of his ideas, and uh, we won't get into too much of that in this in this video, but he, he coined this term planetization to A, talk about the thinking layer, human beings, human sociability, human consciousness and culture, um, our civilization and imagination, encompassing the planet as a sort of thinking layer of the earth. And I think this is still a bit anthropocentric if we really take into account Thacker, post-humanism, the non-human turn, right? Um, or even Gepser, 
who credits Gene Gepser, who credits Tehard for thinking in a similar light to him and, and Sri Aurobindo having a similar insight, um, the, the integral turn or this planetary turn is still, it's asking us to be, um, uh, to rid ourselves of our own anthropocentrism, right? Our own self-abstracted privilege or exclusivity um, and I think this term can be read in a way, and, and Tehar's writing can be read in a way that is very anthropocentric. In fact, um, risen to theological heights, right? That the human is the image of, of uh, uh, well, you know, for, for him, he was a Jesuit, so it's the image of Christ. It's the, it's the anthropos image, which is sort of latent in nature. It's a kind of telos of nature. And I, and I want us to hold that lightly. Um, I certainly don't really attribute that to be the image of nature. Um, but nevertheless, I think the concept of planetization is something we should keep. And what he talks about with this process is not only the thinking layer of the earth, not only civilization, but uh, encompassing the earth and this thin material layer of cities and infrastructure and culture and trade and language that to some degree is is this process but what he's really saying is that the human being um and this is where we can twist Tehard into the non-human and into this sort of planetary thinking uh the human being in a certain sense is subjectivizing biological processes, right? The creative generative matrix of life itself, right? And Thacker was talking about cosmology here. So there's a creative living cosmos and we can de-anthropomorph de that cosmos and say, it's not just humans who have the, the noosphere, right? The thinking layer, it's plants, it's animals, it's mice, it's shrews, it's bacteria, everything is poetically mattering itself in, in this diverse consuming and creating and mutual learning environment of, of our universe, our cosmos. We're a part of that. What might be interesting about the human in, in what potential we have is folding that creative cosmos into our own subjectivity, right? Becoming aware, not just self-conscious, that's the beginning of it, and then folding that back in and participating back with the whole, right? In a way that doesn't really make us special. And if we think it makes us special, then we're not doing it, right? This is almost a paradox here. To become planetary is to internalize the processes of um, uh, Gaia hypothesis, of creative evolution, into ourselves and in, a, in some sense become synonymous with the rest of the planet. I'll give you a very material example that's not as philosophical, but I think it, it illustrates this well, and I've talked about this before, uh, where James Lovelock, one of the co-originators of Gaia Hypothesis, uh, in one of a, a lecture, a good lecture series from over a decade ago, the guy's like over 100 now, um, he's still he's still at it. He's still talking, writing, publishing. Um, but he gives us, in the context of the climate crisis, he says, "Could human beings one day become as integral to the biosphere as plants?" And he asks this question because he looks at the history of plant evolution. He looks at the anaerobic to aerobic bacteria overthrow that occurred billions of years ago. Um, 
photosynthesis and oxygen producing um, really plant life. Uh, essentially created an evolutionary catastrophe, a great extinction, which killed off a lot of the uh, anaerobic bacteria and uh, created the world as we know it today. But now plants have become um, obviously an, an integral part of the self-regulating mechanisms of Gaia, of, of planetary homeostasis. So the question is, you know, human beings have created this interesting thing called culture and thinking and self-consciousness and, and all of this great stuff. Um, but, you know, unless we actually learn to become integral to the planet, we are not going to be able to you know, continue to persist here, right? We, we have a lot of self-destructive tendencies. Our culture is um, very anthropocentric in the sense of, you know, um, ecocide and everything else that uh, folks are talking about these days um, that are of great concern. So what if human beings found a way to culturally, in terms of our intersubjective, our collective imaginary, and perhaps even a planetary imaginary, bring in the knowledge, the ways in which, the ways and principles of life in which life actually um, thrives, what if we can bring that into ourselves and enact a culture that expresses that consciously? That would be quite a wonderful thing. Um, and it reflects what Gebser talks about with this integral ontology as, as having this quality of transparency. And when Gebser's talking about transparency, I think this is another good example of that somehow the human and the non-human world become transparent to one another. That the world out there in nature isn't really separate from the world in here and the human being and human culture, but that that is not just a nice principle or a nice aphorism or a nice thing to say, you know, when we're feeling a little um, inspired or perhaps having a little, a little peak experience going for a walk in the mountains and feeling connected to things, but is actually one of the cosmological and epistemological foundations for uh, a future human culture, right? That is actually be able to enact that and not become uh, a destructive force for the rest of the, the non-human world, right? Can we enact that? Can we bring that into ourselves? I think that's one of the most interesting questions we could be asking ourselves right now. And therefore, um, one of the most important ones, just existentially speaking, if we wish to continue with this concept of the planetary transparency of the human and the non-human, of biology, nature and culture, have to in some way find a way to, to integrate themselves. And this requires new modes of thinking, new epistemologies, um, and also retrievals. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, great conversations like the mo a recent book, Sand Talk, um, and a lot of conversations about indigenous thinking. Uh, and there are many ways in which we, should, we really shouldn't be seeing this as a developmentally stage-centric theory of macro-human cultural evolution. I think that gets very, again, very anthropocentric and then also very Eurocentric in the sense of like, well, it's contemporary modern scientific societies that are leading the way into a better future. Uh, we have to drop that sense of linearity as well. So all of these things, I think, kind of constellate the modes of thinking that plant going planetary might ensue.
Um, and one of the final things that, that, I, that I'll include here, which is um, also going to be involved in uh, a piece for uh, Emerge, uh, what is Emerging Magazine is, uh, and also it was part of my uh, essay on metamodernism, uh, the concept of going meta, obviously a lot of folks are very interested in that, uh, as, a, as a sort of, again, presumed to be higher stage or thinking about thinking about thinking and that kind of stuff. And rather than that, I, I do think that is a way to go meta. Uh, rather than that, we can look to the the etymology of the word meta and metaxis as a kind of in-betweenness that I think is more important and that I actually think holds more dimensionality if we really try to, to meditate on what that word means. The betweenness of things, the interrelationships of many different dimensions, many different time phases of past, present, and future, many different co-evolving, mutually learning, living organisms of the human and the non-human, co-mingling together with one another as kin in the, as Haraway calls the Cthulhu scene. Uh, the metaxis principle or the meta principle, I think is another characteristic that we should really keep in mind here as a way of um, recognizing the living interrelationships which are dynamic, processual, and in a sense, I don't want to say atemporal, but require our sense of time and space to be much more multidimensional. And we don't want to fixate that multidimensionality um, through conceptualizing it as, as higher and higher stages or higher and higher levels of development. Rather, it's a kind of an intensification of being immediately concretized and present and open to those dynamic relationships in the concrete present. So it's much more of being in between and the wholeness that emerges in that betweenness, if that makes sense. So going planetary is also going meta, but we have to be careful that meta is not more of the same attitude of projection, development, progress, et cetera. As, as Tim Morton says, uh, the, the kind of aphorism of modernity has been, anything you can do, I can do meta, right? So there's this one-upmanship with it. Um, that's not the kind of meta that will flourish in the planetary, you know, period, full stop. That is not the kind of meta that we need, and nor is it the kind of meta that will serve us if we really wish to begin to cooperate with the non-human world and cooperate with our own humanity, right? I mean, again, retrieving indigenous thinking, retrieving um, the, 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 this is something, another topic that I talk about quite a bit, the loss of the commons, um, uh, the atrophy and the atomization of our social imaginary and our cultures. These are things that are not necessarily a higher stage of development, but are rather something that we, uh, flourished in, no longer do, and might flourish in again if we can remediate those capacities of the human. Uh, and I think we will learn, and I think we need to learn to extend some of those concepts of the planetary in terms of the commons, the social imaginary, the, the poetics of meaning, making, and matter. These are not necessarily even distinctly human capacities, but rather um, capacities that we share cosmologically speaking, in the non-human world. 
and Andreas Weber's work, I think, has done a good job of extending this principle of the commons to non-human beings, right? To all sorts of creatures and kin. So I think there's 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 a flipping that needs to take place here in going planetary, where a lot of what we've privileged for ourselves um, gets gets distributed. But on the other hand, uh, almost almost conversely to that, um, we no longer feel perhaps as you know in modernity the the process. Uh, was a, was a, a trajectory of feeling less and less meaning, uh, less and less importance, less and less human center is centering, right? Like in terms of, well, you know, we're not the center of the uh, solar system, we're not the center of the universe, we're not even the center of evolution. Um, that kind of decentering and demeaning is reversed in this capacity to actually extend meaning and poetics to the cosmos. And then suddenly we are participating in something that is much more meaningful and rich and creatively mutually inactive with the non-human world. Um, we're inhabiting that cosmology. And I think that cosmology is much healthier for uh, an age of climate crisis. So all of these things, I'm not sure if they're coherent, but I hope at least they constellate um, a sense of going planetary, uh, going meta. Planetary is a sort of via negativa. Uh, the learning and pedagogical crisis that we're going through in terms of um, the negative image form of planetary cultures being uh, the, their catastrophe, right? The things falling apart and breaking gives us the kind of negative image of the future in that sense. So we can learn a lot from how things are breaking in the present. And then, of course, Gaia hypothesis is sort of let's, let's biologically decenter the human, right, and really kind of recognize what what our role could be in terms of that Lovelock uh, idea or metaphor of becoming integral to the planet in the same way that photosynthesis and plants are. What is the kind of human that could become integral to the homeostasis and self-regulation of the planet Earth? Uh, these are very interesting inquiries, I think, for us and in, into the future. So, okay, I think that's it for today. Um, this one's going to be just a little bit shorter. But again, if you're interested in following up, um, I'll have more books and more reflections next week for the next stream. And definitely connect with, with mutations on Patreon. And I'll leave a link in the comments or the, the show notes for that. Uh, one other thing, the class, Cohering the Radical present. It's a, uh, an experiential praxis class, uh, reading through some segments of ever-present origin and offering different uh, guided techniques for meditation. And uh, I could talk about that in one of the next live streams as well. Um, I think that's it for now. So have a great day, everybody. And thanks for tuning in. See you next week.